0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Lees here with my good friend and co-host, Richard Harris. And we are brought to you today and for the rest of July by our good friends and partners at Salesforce Revenue Cloud, or Sales Cloud, or both clouds, uh, Gong.io and Vidyard. And they've been rocking with us all summer long, and we appreciate everybody um, showing up and listening, and hopefully you get some learning and enjoyment, some humor and some laughs out of all these podcasts that we do. And we are here today with the CEO of Sendoso, Chris Rudigrap, and uh, looking forward to having a good conversation. It's been a while, Chris, haven't talked to you in a bit. Good to see you, man.
1: Yeah, good to see you too. I was just uh, talking with Richard briefly about how it's either the conference scene, which we haven't seen each other in a couple of years. And I think I saw you last in Austin, maybe two and a half years ago when we're a much smaller company.
0: Yeah, really small. Yeah. Um, yeah. In yeah. fact, in fact, you and I, I don't, I don't know about you and Richard, but you and I have been talking since Sendoso was like microscopically-ish.
1: Yeah, like small. 10 employees or something like yeah. three and a half years ago or something. Yeah.
0: So for, for, for the benefit of folks who maybe don't know what Sendoso is or does, give everybody uh, just a real quick, not a pitch, but just a real quick like background on what you all do and, and what you've been building over there.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so we're a setting platform, uh, which means we help other companies send out, you know, direct mail, corporate swag, personalized gifts, um, really making it easy for, for, pros- for, uh, you know, salespeople to connect with prospects in a, in a unique way.
0: So in, in your mind, is, is this just an additional kind of, um, channel for salespeople to participate in the same way that email and, and, Call phone calls of course, and, and social is, or is it something outside of that?
1: I think it's additional channel. I think when you're in sales, you want as many touch points as you can to either get the buyer's attention um, or to you know build rapport during the buying cycle. I think uh, you know especially in competing uh, products where you are trying to maybe win on the the, the buying journey's experience. You uh, you know AEs can have success with using this as just a better way to you know have that prospect like them more and, and be better um, at sales because of it. What's
0: the what's the best what's the best gift somebody has sent you in a sales cycle kind of process
1: um i mean for me i'm uh i'm big into booze so when i get a really nice bottle of uh you know whiskey or a nice bottle of tequila i I'm, I'm always happy because that will never go to waste <laughs> so
0: <laughs>
2: uh, notice, notice the large grin on scott Lee's face. Yeah.
1: man <laughs> after man after my own heart
2: there <laughs> what is because I, I don't know if scott will ask but what is your favorite tequila
1: um, so I love uh Casamigos. Um that's my my favorite tequila. Scott, is that your one of
0: your favorite? Yeah, that's yeah, that's the that's the go-to like everyday tequila that yes. won't shatter your, that won't shatter your bank account. Correct. Right? There there are things above that, but you know Yeah,
1: exactly. Like there's definitely some other ones that I'll sip on from time to time, but, uh, like yeah. I love 1842, uh, or 1942, I mean, um, or Casa Azul, but, you know, I feel like yeah. I'm just drinking money at that point. Scott <laughs> so, only
2: drinks Casa Azul. So, <laughs> you
0: know, yeah, there you go. yeah. Well, I, You know, I'm drinking my money as, as Chris <laughs> said, you gotta do something, you gotta do something with it. Well, how, how has, how has the sending platforms and corporate gifting in general, uh, evolved in the last couple of years. I would think in the last couple of years because of remote and, and COVID and everything, um, you know, it's been a boost to the visibility of, of your platform and, and what you all do. So I'm curious how you how you see, how it's evolved and, and where it might evolve next.
1: Yeah, and, and even to take that one step farther. So, you know, when I started the company a little over four years ago, prior to that, I spent about 10 years in, in software sales myself. So I was a an AE turned, you know, founder CEO. And so, even you know, five years ago when I was in AE, the uh, the idea of sending you know gifts or handwritten notes or things like that was s- still semi, um, you know, common. It was just extremely manual or something that you know marketing was doing, and sales would have to like um, kind of the alignment wasn't ideal there. And so, I think with the um, kind of modern technology that Sendoso and others are bringing into the market now. It's, um, it's much easier for sales people to have um, access to, to this touch point and in, in a kind of scalable operational way that they can send something just as easy as an email or a text message or a social social message.
2: So, you know, in my mind, and maybe I'm the naive one, right? Um, when people utilize your platform, are they sending it sort of as not a coupon, but a link, and then someone can choose and then they can put in their address? Because I think that's always yep. a challenge,
1: right? Yeah. yeah, so I, I, it's definitely a mix of that. So you can let the recipient choose and give them a the choice of, of options or donate to charity. So there's the, the situation where they can then, you know, especially during COVID, they can say, hey, I want this to go to my home address versus my office address. Um, and, you know, prior to COVID and now kind of post-COVID, you, we still see people sending kind of surprise and delight, things that just land on your desk without you even knowing. Um, And that's another great way to kind of uh, break through the the noise as well.
2: But that also requires solid data, right? Like that- It does
1: require solid data to get out, to get on someone's desk or versus just in their inbox. But I think that's also the benefit of the channel is it's a a little bit more effort involved um, and there's also a cost involved. So it's not as, uh, it's almost impossible to get us oversaturated as maybe some of the other channels. Right. because, you know, there's a, a higher level of effort and cost. Yeah. So, and I'm actually. not going to
0: spam out bottles of Closet Azul, Richard. <laughs> yeah.
1: Scott's
2: address is very well known. I'm happy to sort of, you know, give it out to anybody who wants it. So if someone texts me 415 9149 and you're like, I need to send Scott a bottle of
0: tequila, I will gladly yeah. give Scott's address. So. Yeah, and then I'll have Chris come over, and we will drink it together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: so, I,
2: so I had a, a another question. How do you? And, and maybe people are just like, screw it, fuck it. You know, because some companies say you can't accept gifts, right? Like some companies have a internal policy. Yep. Is they, you know, you just don't care. Doesn't really fucking matter. Or, you know, I, how do you I guys think it,
1: help? Yeah. Work? So I think it's there's a couple different ways that I look at that. One is you know, we do have these like Salesforce validation rules where companies can set things in place where if someone's not supposed to be receiving something, a salesperson doesn't uh, have the ability to send it to that person. So you can put some guardrails in, that's the first thing. Two, it depends in some cases in a sales versus like client success scenario. So maybe a company can't receive something during a sales process, but if they're already a customer, they can receive gifts from vendors. So, you know, you can think about it like that. The third thing is we, outside of just pure gifts, there's other things that you can send, whether it's collateral, whether we have these really unique like boxes where a video, uh, when you open it, a video plays. And so there's no monetary value to that, but it still grabs the attention of that recipient and hopefully delivers your message or drives, you know, a meeting or, you know, deal acceleration. So there's things that you can send that have no monetary value, which still do what you want, which is let me get in front of this prospect.
2: Yeah. How did you, so what was it like going from AE? Did you go straight from AE to founder?
1: When yeah. Yeah. I I basically, uh, uh, it was Q3, 2016, the last day of the quarter, closed my book, you know, was, here's all my deals I'm going to be able to get done. And then next day, Q1, Q4, it was, uh, um, I was, okay, now I'm, you know, square zero and had to basically map out what this uh, Sendoso platform was gonna be and and really went from sales mindset to product engineering uh, mindset.
2: So, but did you, how long did the idea bake in your head?
1: So actually it baked for a while because I felt the pain of trying to send stuff uh, at my last company at TalkDesk and it was a very manual process. I found myself packing boxes. I found marketing having us fill out spreadsheets that took like weeks and weeks and weeks to get sent out. Um, and then I had built kind of a, a V1 prototype on kind of nights and weekends called Coffee Sender, which was really just the ability to send a Starbucks e gift inside what of Salesforce. I mean, that's when yeah. I met mean, you. I remember. Yeah, yeah. So that was like the, the V1 that um, was uh, at least allowed me to kind of conceptualize building some, some software and getting something to market. Um, The hard part then was taking a digital only gift and then really scaling out the warehouse infrastructure. And and now we have, you know, a half dozen, uh, you know, fulfillment centers around the world. And so that was a a lot of effort going into that. But um, yeah, it was definitely a unique period going from AE to, to founder. Right, and
2: how did you know you had the right fit? Like what was that moment where you went from, oh, this is a cool idea. We've got some people who are using it to like, okay, this thing has legs.
1: A couple of things. I mean, one, I was building this for myself. So I at the very uh, least knew like I needed this and a bunch of my colleagues needed this and a bunch of my sales friends needed this. So I was like the, ultimately I was like the end user buyer. So I had conviction in that. The second thing was my co-founder Braden was also in sales. So while we were Finalizing our first version of Sindoso, we were selling a slide deck and people were signing up contracts from a slide deck um, that they wanted to use this. So that was a good sign too that we could basically convince people to buy, you know, the idea and signing contracts to that. And then, you know, it just quickly thereafter, we had like, you know, 50, 100 customers like overnight. And it became very apparent that this was gonna scale into something big.
2: So- I want to I want to walk through something, and Scott, I'll shut up and let you ask some questions. So, you know, at least from what I know publicly, right? Like you went through, a, you got a two million dollar round in 2018. Uh, a year and a half later, you. I'm sorry, a year later, literally a year later, you got 10 million. Yep. Uh And then uh, a year after that, you got 40. Mm-hmm. Right. So, what's it like going after two million? Right? What is yeah. that? how so I think, is it? What did you What did you learn just going after that initial seed round? And then I kind of like to sort of expand. Well, tell me about the second round and the third round. But what's that really like? Because I think it's fascinating that you've gone from AE to founder to raising fifty plus million dollars. Right? Like that's typically not the story we hear. In,
1: yeah. In- so, so for me, you know, given that I had a sales background, I think it gave me that sales superpower where you can feel like you're you know, ability to just to, to, to hear no's, to go sell anything. Like my mindset was has been sales since, you know, since I, you know, a decade or two ago. And so going after venture money at the, at the time was really, in my eyes, just another sales process. I got a bunch of prospects, their VCs, and I, you know, have a product, which is my company, and I just want to sell them it. And the term sheet is the, you know, the, the MSA. And so, you know, when I broke it down like that, it doesn't seem that scary. It just sounds like another deal I'm trying to close. Um, Lucky for me for the seed round, um, which was the 2 million, it actually, I was at a Salesforce Dreamforce event and my old CEO introduced me to one of his previous investors. And we just like shot and shoot the shit for like, you know, a half hour and then, you know, uh, we weren't even really looking to raise around at that time. And they were like, let's do this. And so it was kind of like an inbound, you could call it, um, that just came and knocked on my door. Um,
2: that's pretty, And that's the key thing I want people to listen to is that, you know, in some cases, yes, you need to go do a deck and you got to go find, mm-hmm. you know, your list and you got to go do those things. Yeah. But ultimately, really it's like they're buying Chris, right? Yeah. Investing in Chris, knowing that Chris has got a cool idea. Well, you tell me? Chris has got a yeah. cool idea this sounds like it could work, but even if it doesn't, they're still like, well, Chris will figure it out. Like Chris yeah. figure it out. And you know-
1: The one that- unique thing that we had was we had some good traction by then. I think we had um, upwards of almost a million in ARR by the time we went out and raised, which is unique. I think in some some uh, stages today, you hear some founders raising with on just an idea. And we uh, were trying to build a, a bit more traction since there was, um, you know, this was, you know, I was a first time entrepreneur. I was, you know, we were in a, a, a category that people, we really had to invent. So it wasn't as obvious as I knew it was. And so that's why getting traction made it so much of a, you know, no brainer for a VC to say, okay, I like Chris, you know, I can get behind the idea. Oh, wow. And they're already doing like almost a million in ARR, like would be dumb not to invest. Right. So I think the traction story helped us too.
2: Right. What are the, now that you've talked to other founders, you know, I'm going to keep digging in this. Sorry, Scott. Just go, go do something, Scott.
1: <laughs> Drink some uh, I'm taking notes.
0: I'm taking notes over here.
2: Right. Uh, what are the things that you were like, oh, that wasn't so hard or, oh, shit, I
1: didn't expect them to ask that question. Or did that not really come to your series B? Um. You know, in all honesty, like the, even series A and B, they we we, we came pretty prepared. We put our, we, you know, when I say what, we...
2: What does prepared mean? Because I don't think people... So know.
1: basically, you know, prepared is really, we had our, you know, ducks in a row in terms of our slide. We had a slide deck. So we really knew we had the story down. We had our our data room of you know, uh, anonymized customer lists, PL, uh, other things that we knew they were going to ask for. Um, and, you know, for most of the questions, it was, you know, we I was living and breathing this business. So there's nothing I couldn't answer. Right. And then at the same time, as a, as a salesperson, you you get pretty good at deflecting questions in a way that seems very natural. Um, and so there was never a time where it was, there was an awkward moment. I would just turn the question on the VC or I'd you know, answer it with another question.
2: Give, give give an example. I turn the question on the VC.
1: Um, you know, it could be like, well, you know, uh, I can't, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head because it's a couple of years ago, but. Um, Did they bring me, like, would it have been, hey, who's your competition? Hey. Yeah, exactly. It could have been the who's your competition. And, and while I would probably answer that in saying who our competitors was, I would, Also, skew to say like, well, here's you know when we think of competition as you know doing it this other way, like I can deposition the competition um, while answering their questions. So it's like, so so if I'm
2: hearing you, you might say, well, here's what I think you mean, and these are direct competitors. But what do you mean by the word competition? Hoping they might come in and say, well maybe it's not a competitor, maybe the competition is some other internal resource or some other internal purchase that they're going to buy, you know, or is that what I'm hearing?
1: hundred percent. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, long story short, I think there's really, um, I'd said my sales background extremely helped in, uh, VC fundraising because there, I I was, there's never a time where I was feeling like I was going blind into a, a meeting. I could, I could always, you know, answer a question or, uh, you know, not answer it in a, in, in a unique way.
2: Let's, let's go to the big round. Let's go to the 40 million. Yeah. Right. So one more nerves, less nerves, just another term sheet. And also when you go to a 40 million, and I've never experienced this. So I'm sort of asking, I'm asking, mm-hmm. curiosity. do you go to your first two round people and say, look, we're going to go after 40 million. Will you advise me on how to get there? Cause maybe because sometimes you know some VCs are like, well, we only do this stage. We don't go yep. to that stage, right? But there's value in them if they you go
1: get 40 million, right? Like yeah, for so for them, like, um typically five the five early years, so sorry. Yeah, the early stage investors, you know, they want to help you continue to grow. So they're gonna make introductions to other VCs that are at that stage of investment so you you typically will have your seed stage investors maybe your early stage a and b investors or maybe your your growth investors which maybe will dip into the b but then c d and above and Mm so typically investors know where they are and some firms have multiple funds that play in different stages a a vc might have an early stage fund and a late stage fund and so our current investors we're more or less just making introductions but you know we for, for actually all the rounds. For for whatever reason, we were we just got a lot of inbound, and I think it's because we kept our eye on driving the business forward. We had a great business model, we had traction, and you know I, I still think there's some like secret underground like VC Slack group or something where they're like, hey, you know, Synoso's hot and trending, and then everyone just you know somehow pours in because that's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could have also been like our current VCs like seeding the the, the market a little bit and saying, hey. You know they're willing to to raise and look at um, some investors. So I'm going to ask the same question
2: two different ways. So one, who, who are the biggest assholes in the VC world? <laughs> uh, and Scott would love to hear the answer to this one too. Um, but I think I think the real question behind that though is, how do you know a good? You know th- this is a good VC for you. Right. Like there's so many out there and they're great. Like there's Salesforce Ventures and Google Ventures and there's Andreessen and there's, you know, Stage Two and Oak and Craft and all these great VCs. But how do you know the ones the right for you? And I don't know if maybe you got multiple offer sheets.
1: Yeah. So you do get multiple term sheets. So, you know, good, good founders and CEOs get a pick and choose who they want. Um, you know, I think that. Uh, um, there is some assholes. I won't name names. I think you know. There's. I kind of think about it as you know. It's a. It's a sales process for them. They should be trying to court me, and in t- doing so, you know, them going dark or them not running a good sales process. I've uh, I've seen some um, you know uh, VC firms really st- start to think about like the founder experience and even having like founder experience operating partners thinking about that. So I think that the tables have turned, you know, maybe a decade ago, VCs could be like, F you, I got the money, I got all the power. Now the, the, the founders have more power and so they can pick and choose. And so VCs have to get crafty in terms of how they can um, win, win a deal or win, win the term sheet. Um, and with that, I think that's where the good ones stand out is where, is there certain value adds outside of just money? Um, whether it's, you know, connections. I think stage two is a great example. We love them because they have about, uh, I don't know, th- two, 300 LPs that are all like CROs, you know, yeah. the, you know, so it's an it's a amazing more value out than just money. Um, and then that's I think Robert, there's, what's that?
2: That's Mark Roberge, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Mark Roberge, I'm a big fan of his when I read his book and when I was in sales myself. So working with him was also um, something that was really cool. But um so it's really like the value out of the people too. Like I uh, you know, you, you kind of get married to this VC board member for a while. And so uh it's like, would you be happy locked in an elevator with them for you know an hour? And so I, I kind of put that litmus test in my head too, and I'm trying to finalize who had who I'd want on my board.
0: I wanna I want to go back to utilizing um sending platforms and, and corporate gifting. Can you just can you talk a, a little bit about some of the the best practices that an AE or an SDR, um, you know, should should think about and, and, and execute on. For example, probably not a good idea to send people, you know, five bottles of booze in five straight days. Right? Unless probably not a good <laughs> idea, unless you're me. Yeah. yeah, that would work for me. But for most people, like, you know, you don't want to bombard their uh, mailbox, let, yeah. let's say. Um, And things like that and and like the length of the note should the note be handwritten like what are some of the things there that sellers should pick up you know from this conversation and and implement
1: yeah so I'd say that's a great that's a great topic so uh, first is I'd say how you uh, think about your your overall outreach strategy. You know, it, this sendoso and and, and and gifting and direct mail is not like a a golden gun where you send one and you're gonna everything's gonna happen and the world's gonna give you you know, everyone's gonna reply. So it's really, how do you place this into a sequence? Is it the, the second step? Is it the eighth step? And how are you thinking about that? Just like you think about email and social and phone calls. So it's another touch point. And how are you integrating that into your your entire sequence to either get the meeting or if you're an AE, maybe how are, how are you thinking about this in terms of your, you know, getting the deal across the finish line kind of buyer experience deal acceleration. So I think first is kind of your your strategy of, of, of when, when to send. Um, you then um, want to decide the, kind of what to send. And I think that is important because, uh, you know, you have this opportunity to be creative. And I think salespeople, you know, there was maybe a couple of decades ago, you know, before kind of uh, automation came out, people had to focus a lot of their efforts on how do I find the data and the, and the, the leads? And, and, and then how do I send emails? And so now that you've kind of been able to a- automate some of that, creativity is more of the secret weapon. I think when I I remember like eight years ago, like when I think Yesware was coming out, it felt like Yesware was my secret weapon. No one knew what it was yet. And I could just like mass blast. And it was kind of, that was my secret weapon. Now I think creativity is a salesperson's secret weapon in the sense of you can craft like, hey, I see you're wearing a 49ers shirt. Or we talked about, you know, uh, tequila, things like that, where I can get a unique personal aspect of something to send you um and then i think the the final thing is the 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 note like what do you want to write with it you know you can't just say hey here's a bottle of tequila like you know i'm going to call you tomorrow and you're going to meet with me you know it's you're still trying to earn that person's trust and so um
2: because i want to i want to hit scott up with this because he he i wouldn't say well you rail a little bit on personalization Right. Um, but Scott's a unique animal, right? He's not your typical VP of sales yep. or something like that. Scott, what what did you think as you heard that from Chris about trying to figure this out? Because you're you're a tough
0: nut to crack around this stuff. Well, <clears throat> I, I think the the same way you do research into you know what to say to somebody over email or on the phone. Chris mentioned, you know, 49ers shirt which i'm wearing right now right um you probably need to do the same amount of research into the what you are sending i would think right yep. and it uh when people get it right it's pretty awesome like i have been the recipient of many good bottles of tequila in the last couple of years i don't i have it. also been the recipient. sends re- me anything <laughs> very disappointed well, you got to put it- well, you, you maybe you should start drinking, first of all. That would probably help, Richard. Okay. Uh, but on the flip side of that, I have received bottles of red wine, white wine, whiskey. Now, these are all things I'm allergic to and would damn near kill me. So if you knew me at all, have paid any attention to you know stories I tell, things that I've written, um heard me on podcasts or whatever talking about things i've went through you would know that right so if i get a gift that is like well-intentioned but totally off base and damn close to dangerous for me that's kind of a missed opportunity i think so that's how i think of it richard i think of it as like you should probably do some research before you just click a button and send somebody something to make sure it's the thing that they you know talk about or flaunt somehow or, or enjoy or love, right?
1: Yeah, and that's how I think about it. And that's how we suggest too, where you either have, you have conviction that this is the right gift. So you're gonna send it personal and, and typically that will involve research or personal interactions, or there's more general things that you could generally send to somebody and the likelihood that they might like it is high. You know, um, So I, I think you can always go uh, to that route too, which is more generalized and still see uh, traction, um, but not risk the sending you something that is completely opposite of personalized and, you know, can be detracted. And you have, you know,
0: I think Richard, to your point though, like you still have to be a little bit careful because I, I would probably venture to say that most people would think sending somebody coffee is like a safe, you know, easy gift. I don't drink coffee. In fact, I'm allergic to coffee, right? So you just, you, you have to be careful. And so I think that's what some of it is, is like go the extra mile. The same yeah. way you want to go the extra mile before you cold call someone or go the extra mile before you email someone. That's the difference between like good personalization and like, hey, Chris, I saw you went to Arizona State too. Awesome,
1: right? Yeah. Exactly. I would agree. Did you go to Arizona State? I didn't, no. I went to Chico State. Oh, that's even better for Scott
0: that's <laughs> oh, way better yeah in fact that's one of the first conversations that we had we talked we talked about that Yep. So what what about the uh salesperson who's thinking oh this is this is pretty neat but like you know we sell a super cheap product so the price point like doesn't make sense like is it in fact not right for some sales people on some sales orgs
1: I don't think so. I think there's price points that can meet everyone. You know, you could send a handwritten note. Uh, you could have a you know a five dollar Starbucks card, um, and that could make impactful. I think it's uh, there's things that can be you know uh, uh, priced for all purposes, whether it's a thousand dollar sale or a thirty dollar sale or a two hundred thousand dollar sale. I think uh, you know you obviously can spend more if you have a um, you know a higher ACV, but it's not something that I think you have to uh, be completely priced out of. So we've seen small, uh, cost-effective things, and so.
0: As you as you've gone and scaled Sendoso over the last few years, can you talk about some of the things that have tripped you guys up, um, and and have been you know, kind of big milestones that you've had to like struggle against, and then okay, fine, we we, we got over that
1: that hump. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of like a logistics component of it, you know, in the early days we've moved facilities probably three or four times as we've expanded. And so that's a little bit different than maybe just a pure software business where you can just like spin up another, another cloud server. It's like there's physical constraints. So that was, uh, you know, interesting when we launched international um, there was uh, constraints there that we had to, from a supply chain and logistics perspective. So, I think some of the logistics side were um, constraints that then we you know once we we launched those facilities or grew into bigger facilities it became a, a huge milestone um, and then other, you know other revenue milestones are obviously great like the 10 million 20 million all these kind of ARR numbers that you can, can talk
2: about about you know this is a topic you know outside of you know Sendoso like it's all the rage the last year and a half the supply chain like, what mm-hmm. the heck does that mean? Like, we don't talk about that a lot. So many so many customers, I mean, you have two things, right? You have a SaaS platform, yep. a <clears throat> goods piece, which yeah. is very different than most SaaS orders, right? Yep. Um, so I'm curious a little bit around supply chain, and then I'd maybe even love to talk about margins, because margins might be a slightly different, you know, you know, we always sort of say, what's your acquisition cost? Well, yours is like crazy, right? But Talk a little bit, what is a supply chain? What's it mean? Um, you know, just anything that you could give educational on the supply chain.
1: Yeah, so for us, supply chain is, you know, because we um, are dealing with uh, physical goods. And we also think about supply chain in terms of some of the digital e-gifts, too, because there's a finite resource of like maybe one of our suppliers for Uber Eats gift cards, um, you know, we have to make sure we have enough of uh, the, those are, you know, in stock or those are actively available. And so I think what most of our supply chain efforts are around, you know, the, the different gifts and direct mail options. And so we have a network um, or a marketplace of all the different uh, gifts that you could send out. And then behind the scenes, there's, you know, all the different suppliers and manufacturers and distributors that we're working with to get those. And then we have to decide whether those items, when we procure them, are coming into our warehouse first and we're storing them and packing and kitting them and shipping them and writing handwritten notes, or there's a drop ship component. Is it a uh, going to one of our three PLs where we have a partner facility that operates uh, under our kind of uh, process. So they're, they're basically just a bunch of moving parts behind the scenes that no one really thinks about, um, but you know, are getting we, a product from point a, a to
2: point like B. A, are you a little bit like an Amazon?
1: I would think about it. Yeah. I would say that we do have components to where you could think about us as an Amazon, especially in the sense that they have a, a marketplace feature where third party sellers are ultimately able to post what put what they have uh, to the you know to to anyone out there wanting to buy. So is, is it
0: is this something that you just had to put in, you know, the time and energy to to learn about? Or is this something where you were like, you know what? I don't know anything about this. I gotta hire somebody to do all this stuff.
1: Um, so it was kind of both. I mean, when you're a founder in the early days, you kind of have to do everything because you don't have, we didn't have unlimited dollars to go hire everyone. And also for the, the, the biggest experts, they don't want to maybe t- take a step back to work at a, a company that's so small or that doesn't have the, the scale. So it was, uh, you know, probably a year of me learning and, and some others on my team figuring this out before we brought in like a true supply chain expert or or, or multiple supply chain experts, I should say now. So, you know, we've got, you know, world-class team now, one of our VPs of supply chain was at like Nike for like a decade, Levi's, um, you know, so we, you know, so while what we're doing in the supply chain side um, is very interesting in the kind of the B2B sales world, it's you know the ecom world has experienced some of these pain points and, and figured out how to solve these problems you know a decade ago we're just kind of reapplying them in our unique model
2: cool what um what does this do to cost right what is this how do you you know how does this affect you uh
1: like from uh, how we look at our supply chain and, and yeah like so you know so for example
2: you know i'm a customer i got 10 reps and yep. I'm, paying, I'm paying, I don't know what I pay for your platform, right? But immediately off the bat, as the reps start to do things, there's an immediate ding to the, right. to the value of that customer to you. Not in a bad way, right? But it does affect cash or cash flow or or margins. Yes. How do you navigate that, right? Like, and I'm, and I'm just curious because it's something I don't hear people talk a lot about. Like in SaaS, it's like, oh, you know, by the third year, it goes down. Well, technically for you guys, by the third year, it could stay the same or go up because they get a bigger team and they order more right like how do you navigate that as a as a as a as a ceo in terms of profitability
1: yeah so we you know for, for us we really still focus on being a saas company ourselves so companies will buy into a subscription of sendoso and so that's kind of our our main north star of looking at you know, really companies look to us first to solve uh, really a a software need, you know, sending a gift from, you know, was something that was done offline for for decades. And so we've brought software to make it extremely streamlined, integrated into their CRM and other tools. And so companies come to us saying, Hey, I need software to take this, you know, gifting process and, and bringing it online and streamlining it and operationalizing it. And so that's where we we mainly focus. The margins on the, the gifts and stuff, the, you know, we we really try to pass along that the discounts to our customers. And so while that's um, while we do track that because you know as a business we need to, we're not mainly focused on that, and we're, we're really focused on the similar SaaS metrics that almost any other SaaS company would have.
2: Dude, that was the smoothest way to say I'm going to pass along the cost to my customer by saying
1: I'm going to pass along the discount to my customer. Like that was. It is a well, it's a we do see like a Costco model in the sense of like we can buy in bulk and we have you know economies of scale, so I can buy you know tequila cheaper than Scott can, and um, uh, then I can pa- you know give it a, an, a pass that costs. I don't know,
2: Scott gets tequila for free, it sounds like, so
0: that's not the same scale Chris is talking about. <laughs> is it Chris? Is it? Maybe not so much now because you're large, but um, is it hard as a salesperson turned founder to stay out of the way of the sales team and the sales process and like resist the urge to, you know, take the damn phone out of their hands or, you know, chime chime in uh, about how the sales team should should grow? Is that is that hard?
1: For you? Um, you know, for me, I really had to focus on delegation in that I. That, and, and I knew that I had to hire people that were smarter and better than me at, at sales and everything else in order to be successful. Because I think as a, a CEO and founder, you can't be a micromanager of everything. You're just going to you know, drive the company into the ground. So I very early on was like, I'm going to hire the smartest people and they're going to do things um, you know better than me. Um, but I, but I do as a, a CEO still try to chime in into sales processes, but in more, maybe a more helpful way, like, hey, I see an opportunity created, and I know someone that works there, or I'm trying to connect advisors and investors in the deals, or so I'm, I'm more probably a more uh, sales-assisted CEO than most out there, in that I will help our SDRs, our AEs, our AMs, you know open up deals and-
2: How did you learn, I mean, were you a good delegator to begin with? Like Scott and I've talked about, I'm a shitty
1: delegator, Scott's amazing at it. And I learned from him all the time. Were you good at delegating or not? And I I was really good at delegating, even through my time in in, uh, sales, I even had like an Upwork uh, account where I'd find people to do do things for me.
2: (laughs) If if you're working with a guy like Richard, who cannot, who just struggles to delegate, because I think I can do it faster and better and blah, 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 right? How do you teach someone like that to delegate more? What would what would be like the first piece of advice? Uh,
1: my first piece of advice would probably be, you know, maybe mapping out what uh, what are the different things that you're doing that could be delegated, um, and visually seeing maybe in a you know in a to do list like a, a sauna.
2: I, I Chris, I don't even know, man. Like I, I I like I can't even envision this.
1: Like I don't know. Um, then maybe interviewing you, like I would look at your calendar or interview, like what are, you know, what did you, what what did you do this morning? What were your first four meetings? Maybe one of your meetings this morning was, oh, I, you know, I was listening to a podcast and I took a bunch of notes. You know, maybe I could say, Hey, well, maybe if you had a a VA, they could do that for you. And, you know, what, and, and then boom, now you've kind of said, okay, that makes sense. Um, so I think it's, you know, it sounds like for you, it's getting into the weeds of the specifics of, of your day. And then how do you figure out which of those you can, um, you know, pass off to someone That's else? Great. And in some I, cases, you know, uh, a delegation isn't needed in all cases. Um, but I think, you know, for, you know, from going from zero to about over 400 employees now, there is a lot of delegation that needed to happen.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that would be, oh, that would probably be my downfall where Scott would be like, okay, Richard hire me like now <laughs> or
0: scott would just be my co-founder because he'd be like you i i you know there's a lot of things you can go into here about about delegation but you know at the end of the day for me at least i i'm trying to do as much as i can without doing as much as i can myself yeah yep so <clears throat> that that's like where it was born from and whether that's like laziness or selfishness or whatever like that that has just come naturally you know to me and maybe it's come naturally to chris and so for you for somebody like richard where it doesn't come naturally is there like a tip or two that you could that you could provide somebody to delegate i've tried to give richard tips and he's gotten better to his his credit but like what's like your number one tip so you have a you have a new vp or a new manager there and they're struggling with this, like what's
1: a sound bite that you could give them to be like, try this. Um, I would say really uh, break down your calendar and see what tasks you're doing that you can give to someone else. I think that's the easiest tactical way um, to, to actually make a difference in your delegation. Um, For me, I had a to-do list um, and a calendar, and I would always look at those things and figure out what do do I not want to do? So, so, you know, where I should hire for somebody like- There you go. I didn't like invoicing and and accounts receivable tables. So I was like, okay, I don't like doing this, so I'm going to give this to someone else. Or, hey, I find myself spending a lot of time doing these things. Why don't I hire someone that could do that instead? Um,
0: There you go, Richard. Look at your calendar. Figure out the thing that you hate doing.
1: There it is. And then find someone on, you know, if it's a full-time job or, you know, I've spent hundreds of thousands on Upwork. I'm a huge fan of even micro-delegating where it's like, you know, hey, I, I don't even want to, you know, make this slide pretty. I'm just going to have someone else make the slide pretty for me. Um, and so um, Upwork's a great way to kind of delegate micro-tasks at, you yeah, know, the- small amounts of money.
2: Just for just for the sake of people listening, you know, my challenge is I have a calendar, which is pretty good, My I color code it, which is really good. Uh, and then I have my to-do list. And my challenge is for my mind, I like checking things off a list. And sometimes I'll like go to the minutiae and think, oh, I need to go write this program about sales training. And I'll think, well, maybe I can delegate like I, I do it backwards, right? Like I have this, I'm like backwards George, and now I need to go backwards Richard this because like no richard go write your new training content get rid of all this other shit like that's where yeah
1: i I mean and if someone else is checking off your checklists how cool is that where you're just looking at your to-do list getting checked for you
0: yeah so now that's an excellent point right there there you go richard yeah go on replay replay that line from chris back a few times i I like that one i will um
2: we gotta you know give a quick shout out to our our sponsors um which you know, I was almost going to say Sendoso, but they're not quite a sponsor yet. But you know, thank you, Chris, for jo- for joining yeah, us. Yeah, we Here will you, be.
1: be I'll make it now. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, exactly, Scott. I'm delegating that to you. Um, <laughs> there you go. You're learning. Good job. Uh, but I, I do want to say thanks to Salesforce Sales Cloud, uh, Gong.io, and uh, Vidyard for for sponsoring us the month of July. Uh, Chris, this is the part where we always turn it around to you and, and say, you know, what would you like to ask us? Right? Is there some question you you know you don't get to ask someone outside the company as much as you'd like to.
1: Yeah, I mean some of the things that I admire you guys about is especially with the you know the, the surf and sales has always been really cool. And so I'm, I'm curious how you guys have seen that uh, kind of conferences or events evolve, where you know kind of a micro smaller community, kind of quality over quantity versus the behemoths of like the Dreamforce where you're just a shit show of a hundred thousand people. So. Do you see more events going in more of an intimate setting from the success that you guys have seen in, from surfing sales? Yeah. hundred percent. Yes. hundred um, percent.
0: You know, we, we so had this idea. No, so we, that we can, you know, you know, monopolize the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know, we, well, Richard, arguably we kind of started some of the trend of this, you know, back in, in 2017 and we kind of, rebelled against the shit shows as Chris you know called it and thought that this more intimate uh deeper kind of learning and experiential type conference environment um is what was gonna what was gonna win and you know I, I don't think people are really ready and I don't know that the world is really ready to for everybody to go back and there's 200,000 people in the you know Moscone building like all sorts of things are busting out again and so I I, I think what people are comfortable with now is, oh, let's get 20 something people and go here. Let's get 50 people and go here. And the benefit is like you get to have days or or weeks long worth of conversations with people, not just about your industry or your product or your company, but just like there's a level of comfort and trust and familiarity and the relationship gets established. So like you know, if I if I show up to an event with Chris or somebody from the Sendoso team, and I spend a few days with them, and I'm doing something fun like surfing or whatever, you know, people do a golf outing or something like that. Like, when the time is right for me to start thinking about a sending platform, bang! Like, I know exactly what to do. And and for our events in particular, Richard can attest it. We've had people close deals off each other, their products have been introduced to each other. We've had people pick one company over a competitor because they had that relationship get established. We've had people recruit people from one place you know, to the next. We There's about 80 people plus in the Serpent Sales uh, alumni community now. There's text threads all the time where people are helping each other with deal flow and jobs and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I just think that that is, is only gonna catch you know, kind of more and more, more fire. And you've seen it move into like communities, right? All the micro community Mm -hmm. stuff, the, you know, i got Thursday night sales going on, for example, the, you know, pavilion slash revenue collective has gobbled up other micro communities. I think people are just really kind of hungry for that type of experience. And it's a very different experience than, you know, let me walk through the Moscone Center floor and get pitched by 9,000 vendors. Like, Totally. I
1: I think the cool thing there too is I think that, you know, some people dread maybe going to Dreamforce. It feels like a chore versus I remember, I think it was maybe the first surf and sales. We put up a spiff for the top AE um, that quarter. And as their prize, it was to go to surf and sales, which they were like raving about. So it's almost like a reward and an experience versus a, an event that feels like a, a chore, which is cool. Let me,
2: let me, let me back up and, and, you know, save Scott, you know, and let's not overly criticize Salesforce the because they are sponsoring this. <laughs> Don't forget that idiot. Um, but uh, that might be my clip. Don't forget that. Um, but I think too, there's, we've seen this at the big events too, right? Like I've been to, you know, the Dream Forces, which I still think are very valuable. I think they're mm-hmm. tougher now because of COVID. Um, you know, they're they're scaling them back. Uh, but there's a couple of things. And when, you know, at I think it was our last surfing sales, we talked about one of the things that everybody liked. We kind of went around the table on the last night. We do this really fun event the last night. And and for me, I sort of acknowledge that it was the in-between moments, right? When you go to a conference, even if you go to Dreamforce. The sessions are good, the content's good because you're there for a purpose, but it's kind of like, well, what about that in-between moment, right? And some of those parties become those in-between moments, but sometimes going from one event to the next, you meet somebody, you're sitting down with them at lunch and it's that intimate moment. And I think that's what we've really capitalized on at Surf and Sales, which is also what's been capitalized in these smaller communities of Thursday night sales and and, uh, the different places, you know, Scott's Tequila Tuesday and stuff like that. so I think that's what people are leveraging in their figuring out. Um, you know, for example, I know I've worked with with Salesforce for a while now, and they've internally built a thing called Soberforce, Right? Statistically, they got 60,000 employees. They got a lot of employees who have challenges around mm-hmm. substance or alcohol, and um, and I've talked to them specifically about, well, why don't you guys do a Sober Force event at Dreamforce? Right? There's plenty of people who probably come and would be like, oh my god, I'd love to go to a club and you know, dance and have a good time and not feel the pressure, right? And create that safe space. So that's what I think is is really happening in those places. They're trying to create more in between moments. And to the same thing, you know, Chris, I, I know for a fact that, you know, depending on the money, if Dreamforce is going on, you may go create your own micro event outside mm-hmm. of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that And this is what I see this happening a lot of the bigger events, because well, everybody's already there so it makes sense to go create my own micro moment um so that that's sort of where i see the value of the bigger ones supporting the littler ones um as well as what happens at, at the big ones. so um there you go salesforce thanks mr benioff we appreciate the checks um
1: so, Do we have time for one more question yeah, yeah. fired off. um so I, the last one i was thinking of is you know, I think you guys have done great, um, kind of transitioning from, you know, uh, in, like in-house sales to sales consulting. Um, and I'm wondering, do you find, do you advise on that path? Do you think that there you guys, um, got lucky and are, are skillful in that? Like, um, how do you guys, how, how do you see the, you know, is that a career track that some people can bank on? Like I'm going to go spend 10 years in industry and then I'm going to be a consultant thereafter. Like, uh, How do you
0: guys think about that? We we, we could do an entire podcast on this subject, to be honest with you. I get asked this type of question every way from uh from Sunday. And I've done I've actually formed a couple trainings. Oh, interesting. On kind of how to how to do it and how to pull it off. Um there's a lot going on in there. Number one, yes, of course, I think that I got lucky. Um I think that it would be ridiculous to not think that I got lucky in, in some regard. You know, I picked a couple good uh, companies to attach myself to, and we had some good runs. Uh, and that, at least for me, has provided a level of security and kind of insulation to de-risk things, right? And I waited a long time to go out on my own. Richard was a lot braver uh, than me. So I shouldn't get really very many points for like bravery on on doing this. I did it in a very like strategic and kind of methodical way. Um, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the VP of sales role is an endangered species. What I mean by that is not as many people want to stay in the role and are willing to sign themselves up for it over and over and over I think you're gonna be hard pressed to find people like me who did it five times, who keep going back into the you know, fire one more time. I'm seeing people do it once and hit the eject button, right? Justin Welsh, Colin Cadmus, these, these type of people who had, who had runs and they're like, nah, I'm not doing that. Your job is at risk at all the time. You got big, huge you know, pressure on you. You're managing tons of people. It's a, different, it's a difficult role. And if you've done it well once, and you have a significant amount of equity, there's some people who are just like, ah, I got my nest egg here. I'm going to mm-hmm. use that and leverage my, you know, consulting and coaching kind of career. So I think I think it is a viable path forward. Um, I wish that people would kind of do it more than once. I think there's a lot of vanilla ice, one hit wonder VP of sales people that are leveraging that into a consulting you know, career. And I think that that may be a little bit more risky if you're going to hire, um, you know, a consultant that has to do with scaling your business. So that's my take. Richard's take, I think will be very different since he's much more of like a sales trainer Mm -hmm. than I am. And he was a lot braver than me and cut the cord a lot sooner without, you know, some of this big equity stuff.
2: Let's remember the cord was cut for me. I didn't necessarily (laughs) choose it. So, there you um, so I, I'll disagree with Scott on a couple of things. So one, um, it's not about luck. It's about being prepared. When you choose those companies, you are thinking about, well, what comes next, right? If I'm a sales rep, I'm an SDR and I want to be an AE, well, what comes next? If I want to be an AE and go to director or VP, what comes next? So part of it is the selection of your next role to get you there. And everything becomes a culmination of the others. What I Where I disagree with Scott is that with the Collins of the world and the Justins, the challenge, the the difference there is they chose the right company first. That doesn't happen a lot. That, you know, if you think about SaaS and startups, you know, everybody sells you the dream that they're going to be the next one. And, you know, we've talked about this Scott, in terms of like offering, you know, options at at stage zero or pre-series A and it's like, all right, well you got to take your shot, but to, to get the one hit wonder to your point, which I don't think, I mean, Colin and Justin are very good at what they do. So I, I trust in them, but that's that's different. I, I don't think the VP of sales role is, is quite as endangered as Scott thinks it is. I think it's shifting. The style of VP of sales is different. Understanding more than just closing the business is expected now, right? As we build out the revenue ops teams and that kind of stuff. But I don't think it's quite as endangered in, in my mind. And I don't think that there's a lot of people who can do it. And I think last year, you know, we saw a lot of people start the, the side hustle and con- convert it into a couple of things. I think in the next 12 to 18 months, a lot of those people are gonna have to go back to work, right? They're gonna, they're gonna, you know, the well's gonna run dry on them. Yeah. Their relationships aren't there that, you know, they got a couple of clients because of people they knew. Um, some of them will make it and some of them won't, which isn't bad. Like that's just sort of standard business.
0: Yeah. But I'm i pretty close to this and, and Chris, I won't put him fully on the spot but like it is taking founders a lot longer to find a sales leader than it used to on the recruiting trail. Oh, yeah. Because there aren't as many out there who are willing to sign themselves, you know, up for it again. That's that's a fact right now, Richard. That's a fact.
2: That's also because the VPs of sales know they're not going to play the the like I'm not signing with
0: Chris. Oh, that's but that's what I'm talking. That's what I'm talking about. And that that maybe that's some of what Chris is alluding to in his yeah. in his question. It, this it, is it, this is my point. This could be like an entire episode we can keep going. <laughs> in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So
2: oh. um dude, we, we crushed the hour. That was awesome. Yeah. Chris. Thanks, thanks so much. Thanks so
0: much yeah. for spending some time with us, Chris.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is great.
2: We loved it. We loved it. We'd love to see you again. And, you know, by all means, um, feel free to send another person to the next surf and sales for next
0: maybe year. Maybe not Roy, maybe not Roy bull though. He's, <laughs> he's come enough times.
2: I think Chris needs to come. I think Chris, yeah. um, in fact, Chris, I have a question for you that we're going to take offline, but um, we were thinking about trying to do one with people like you, people who are at series B and C, right? Yeah. Those, the founders and founder only. Founder only, so um, count
1: me in. Um, So I also saw that I think the Surf and Sales Five is sold out. So maybe if you can totally sneak me an extra ticket, I'll uh, get it to someone on my team. Or uh, if you need some, uh, I'm definitely down for the uh, for the kind of founder one too. So, all right, man,
2: thanks so much for joining us, Chris. We appreciate it.
1: All right, see you guys.